It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Now, the government has been warned by leading scientists that they'll be taking part in a massive experiment when almost all coronavirus restrictions are lifted in England on the 19th of July. Masks and social distancing will no longer be compulsory after so-called Freedom Day. Caps on the numbers of people who can visit homes and venues will be lifted. Nightclubs can reopen. And Boris Johnson says people must learn to live with the virus. But Labour's leader, Keir Starmer, has called the plan reckless. Well, joining us now is Stella Creasy, who's Labour and co-op MP for uh, Walthamstow. Thanks so much for being with us, Stella. Was it the right time to loosen up? Isn't July the 19th the right moment, do you think? The challenge here is that the risk is not equal to everyone. So, for example, if you have blood cancer, there is increasing evidence that even if you've had both doses of the vaccine, you don't develop as much of a strong immune response to the, to the virus as somebody who doesn't have that condition, um, as somebody who is heavily pregnant. We are more at risk um, if I were to catch coronavirus now, uh, I'd be at high risk of stillbirth. And again, the protection is an absolute. So when the Prime Minister says we must learn to live with COVID, the challenge here, especially when the the virus is on the increase, and I think that's the really critical point here, is that that isn't going to affect everybody equally. And what I've not heard from the government is a satisfactory answer about what they're going to do to make sure that those of us who maybe are at higher risk are going to be protected. It's not freedom if it's only freedom for some. No, absolutely. And the whole nation, the whole point of all the lockdowns and so on was to protect those most vulnerable people, wasn't it, over the past 15 to 18 months? Um, I mean, Stella, there is some sympathy, surely, though, for, for the government that says if we can't unwind these measures now in the summer, when would it be possible to do that? So now is as good a time as any. Well, we could have been making that argument throughout the last six months. But the point was that the scientists, the people looking at the data, and as I say, looking at the data not just in terms of the spread of the virus, but also the different experiences people have of the virus, has led us to this point. The scientists are now saying, well, actually, 
we're not entirely sure because the virus is on the increase that this is quite the right approach. And so I don't understand why if we were so confident that we should follow scientific advice three months ago, we're not so confident now. And I'm particularly drawn to the increasing evidence of the variation in response to the vaccine. The vaccine has been brilliant. Nobody doubts that. And absolutely, the vaccine is helping to break the link between transmission and serious infection. But if you're somebody with a family member who's got an immunosuppressed condition, somebody with, say, leukaemia or cancer, you can well understand why you will be terrified if we just stop everything now. And I think what we're all saying is let's take a more balanced approach. Let's look at where we might need to keep some restrictions in because these restrictions only work if we all do them together. You know, I wear a mask, not just for my own protection, but for the other people around me. And I think it's that recognition that not everybody is going to be equally free, that we have to make part of what we do next, because otherwise we're asking people to put loved ones in impossible position. But Stella, the other problem in all this is the other side of it, if you like, business, uh, the ability of people to work, the ability of people to run their businesses, hospitality, nightclubs, theatres, all, all kinds of venues need to know to be able to plan. So in a way, we can't just say, well, we'll wait a little bit longer. Don't we have to say there is a point we can draw a line. We will say when things will reopen again, just so they can plan. But I think it's a false choice between all or nothing. I don't think anybody's suggesting. I mean, I, I think all of us recognise, for example, that having 60,000 people together in a football stadium, no matter how brilliant the match, and yet not being able to have uh, more than 30 people at a wedding doesn't, or, or, and not being able to sing, for goodness sake, or dance doesn't really make any sense. But wearing masks, for example, some of the social distancing rules, things that do require us to collaborate with each other and so it helps to have the law in place to make that possible and to make it possible to enforce it when people aren't being respectful of each other are important to have as safeguards it's not let's continue as we have been on or nothing at all it's about a much more balanced approach that takes account of the fact that some people will be put at much higher risk not just because we haven't yet reached that target in terms of the numbers of people being vaccinated and I represent a corner of this country where we have lower levels of vaccination than other parts of the country, and we're trying very hard to address that. But clearly that makes a difference too. Um, but it's also about how we make sure, as we learn more about this virus, and as we've seen this virus mutate before, that we're ready and able as a country to adapt to that. I just don't accept it's all or nothing. And I think that's what's frustrating about the approach that the Prime Minister is taking. Of course, mm. everyone is very concerned about the hospitality industry. That's why it's so important that we help people who have to self-isolate. It's also why it's important that some of the um, economic measures that have been brought in, again, don't just stop suddenly, but actually there's much more thought into what might happen if, say, there was another variation of this virus in the coming weeks. Those are all plans we need to make. Artificial stop-start dates don't help anybody. Stella, that's on the pandemic. I want to move on to a separate topic now. Maternity rights for parliamentarians, an issue that is uh, close to your heart. Um, it was only in February that MPs actually passed a bill for paid maternity leave for MPs. Now there is um, the idea of stand-ins for MPs so that parliamentarians who may be expecting can actually take time out of work. Just explain what you're campaigning for. Well, actually, the law we passed in February, which is the only piece of maternity legislation that this government has passed in recent years at all, was about providing cover for cabinet ministers. So not MPs, but just for cabinet 
ministers. Mm. Um, I am somebody who's been challenging. I'm heavily pregnant with my second child now since my first child to make sure that there was cover so that my constituents were not left without somebody if I took leave to have to be with my newborn baby. Um, let me be very clear about what I'm campaigning for. Mm. It's not about somebody to sit on the green benches. I've always said I can go in and make speeches in Parliament on my Keep in Touch days. But it's all the other work that MPs do, the majority of our work, which is outside of Parliament. It's meetings in our communities. It's representing our constituents to ministers. It's talking to the media about the campaigns and issues that are coming up in our communities that need to change. In my first pregnancy, there was absolutely nothing. And I fought to have somebody who I called a locum, which is a perfectly standard term for somebody who covers for somebody. Um, and I had a brilliant woman who was able to take on that role. And that allowed me to spend time with my child. Unfortunately, the parliamentary authorities, even though we've made provision for cabinet ministers, are now refusing to provide the same thing for backbenchers like myself. So that means that I've got to choose between making sure that my community in Walthamstow, which is a brilliant place, but has a lot of challenges and needs that need addressing, um, is represented and has that advocacy, or my, my newborn baby. But um, and you might be able to hear from my voice. I've been very unwell. I have developed gestational diabetes. I've been mm. in and out of hospital. So already my constituents haven't had me on, on, on tap in the way that they, ha they would do normally. Because there is no cover system, because the parliamentary authorities think it is misconceived to want to cover a backbencher, we're not following laws and we're not following principles that we ask employers to follow. So in the real world, what Parliament has suggested to me, which is to have some more researchers or another office manager, would be illegal because it isn't the same as covering all that advocacy work that um, I do as a, a member of Parliament. But and I think it just sends a very bad message if we don't follow the laws and the principles that we ask employers to uphold in Parliament, let alone that's why there just aren't that many women of childbearing age in our politics. But, but still, I suppose the counter-argument would be that in something like representing uh, people in Parliament, or as you say, outside Parliament, but carrying on that work, they have elected one person to do that. To have someone else represent them, people might see as, as particularly, not, not, not dangerous in itself, but opening a precedent that might be quite awkward. Well, my experience of having had somebody for my first pregnancy was the opposite. In fact, people in Walthamstow thought she was so fantastic, I think they'd rather she'd have stayed on than I came back. But nobody was pretending that she was me. It wasn't about whether she was elected. She was acting with my delegated authority. But it meant that there was somebody who could go to meetings with ministers to make sure that Walthamstow's voices were heard. And I think in the real world, people accept the concept of maternity cover quite happily. You know, if your children's teacher takes maternity cover, you wouldn't be very impressed if only the teaching assistant was left for the next six months to work with the, with the students. But when you have a cover, nobody thinks, well, that's the new teacher and the old teacher isn't coming back. So they're perfectly capable in the real world of understanding the concept of cover. And for Parliament not to do this sends a very bad message at a time when we know that thousands of women have in the pandemic experienced pregnancy and maternity discrimination. You know, what I'm asking for is parity for my constituents for the same thing that's now happening for cabinet ministers. To have a two-tier system where maternity becomes a perk of a seniority doesn't send a good message in the 21st century. Stella, whose mind do you have to change here? Because, I mean, to me, uh, I also think that it's incredible that there is such a different rule for parliamentarians to anybody else. Uh, well, it's up to the Independent Standards Authority, which governs our funding, because they won't fund 
me to be able to recruit somebody to that level and to that status this time round. And that's what I would like to do so that my constituents have that cover. They're obviously independent of parliamentarians. Mm. I'm obviously seeking legal support on the matter because although it may well now be too late for me, unfortunately, I say with the condition that I've developed and the health problems that I'm having, my delivery date may be much sooner than I had hoped. Mm. But I'm determined there are thousands of brilliant women out there who would make yes. fantastic members of parliament uh, and so. I'm worried that they will be deterred from standing because they so. see this situation. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics today. Now, the government's expected to lay out a new proposed law on immigration, Caroline. Yes, this after the Home Secretary, Preeti Patel, vowed earlier this year, if you recall, to tackle illegal migration head on. So the government insists that the plan will be fair but firm and will put those with a genuine need for refuge at the heart of these proposals, whilst removing those with no right to be in the country more easily. The plans all along, though, have been widely condemned by campaigners and charities as inhumane, with some branding it the anti-refugee bill, but we expect to hear more today. Now, the new Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, has warned that new virus cases could rise to 100,000 a day over the summer as the country prepares to relax rules and get back to normal on July the 19th. In a separate statement, the Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, is going to give details of how schools can avoid sending whole sets of kids home if only one has been in contact with an infected person. And finally, the Office for Budget Responsibility has issued this stark warning about government finances. The pandemic could leave the government facing around £10 billion of unfunded pressures on departmental spending, on average over the next three years, from legacy effects across health, education and transport. So that, according to the fiscal watchdog. They also say that the planned transition to net zero carbon emissions could end up adding 21% of GDP to UK debt over 30 years and the government will also find it more difficult either to grow out of or inflate its way out of debt stock. So pretty difficult prospect for the government. Now, the latest news from Afghanistan is more than 1,000 Afghan security personnel have fled the country into its northern neighbour, Tajikistan, following Taliban territorial advances. All this follows the start of the total withdrawal of the UK and US troops from the region, which is due to be completed in September. 
There's a growing expectation that the government and the capital Kabul, painstakingly set up and supported by the US and other Western powers, will lose most, if not all, the country to the Taliban in the coming months. The UK, the US and their NATO allies have been working in Afghanistan for 20 years. Britain lost 455 soldiers and the operation cost the government here £22.2 billion. Has it actually achieved anything? Well, joining us now is Jonathan Goodhand, who's Professor of Conflict and Development Studies at SOAS at the University of London, an expert on Afghanistan and the international intervention. Professor Goodhand, thanks so much for being with us today. First of all, what do you see as the process going on at the moment? What will happen as a result of the withdrawal of the international military forces? Well, I think we have to look historically at a kind of a parallel I think a very disturbing parallel, which was the early 1990s in Afghanistan, where we had a situation in which great power interest and funding to Afghanistan was cut off. And then we had a period of of, of civil war and fragmentation. And while history doesn't repeat itself, there are are some stark parallels in the sense that we have a, a country and a political economy that is being dependent on external infusions of resources and, and military capacity, and now that's suddenly being cut, and there's a real danger. What we'll see is the return to a kind of the importance of regional actors and a fragmentation of the country. Um, mm. So I think it's a very many people see this as a, as a, a disturbing parallel, and but not an unrealistic one either. Okay, this is sounding a bit bleak. Will the Taliban take over altogether the whole country, do you think? I think most people um, think that it will not take place this year, Um, but they're now in control of um, around a third of the the total districts in Afghanistan. Um, It seems like this is now the fighting season and they are attempting to consolidate and extend their power during the fighting season, and it's unlikely, although it is possible, that um, the, the, the major district centre, sorry, the major provincial capitals will fall um, this summer. Um, but in the longer term, it, it does look, you know, it, it is a possible scenario that, that the government could fall perhaps next year. Why is all this ending now? I mean, it's been 20 years. It's looked bleak before. Why uh, is Washington and London and the others, why are they pulling the plug now? Um, well, it, it's clear that, that pulling the plug now has, has really not a lot to do with the, the dynamics of what's happening in Afghanistan. There's a whole set of domestic pressures which have, have, have led to this. Um, it makes very little sense um, from, certainly from the point of view of Afghans and Afghanistan. Um, and there certainly wasn't a demand for this from Afghan partners. Um, a, a train of events has been set in process with the Trump administration's um, kind of Doha agreement, which was made without any real consultation with the Afghan government. This has emboldened the Taliban, and now the, the, the pulling back of troops has, has meant um, that there's very little incentive from the Taliban point of view to um, to negotiate a political settlement, which in the long run is the only way of bringing an end to the Afghan wars in a, a sustainable and just way, at least. Could 
Britain have stayed on in any way? I mean, the UK military have said that they were actually taken by surprise by the US sort of sudden um, withdrawal. Did Britain have any choice in this? Not really, no. And I mean, the failings of the UK engagement in Afghanistan are linked primarily to a broader failing strategically um, of the intervention there. The very kind of unrealistic and kind of transformatory and very militarized agenda um, that evolved during the course of the intervention. I think there was a key strategic um, um, failing in 2002 when it was possible to negotiate with the remnants of the Taliban. Some kind of a political settlement could have been done there, but it was resisted by the US. Now, the UK really. Um, doesn't have a great a choice in terms of its military footprint there now that the US has gone. It's important to say, though, that the UK has been a very important um, player in development terms and there have been some, some successes that the UK played a big part in. And these are you know, the extension of education, of health, of programs like the National Solidarity Program. You know, these are significant gains. And Afghanistan is not the country that it was um, you know, in 1990 or when the Taliban fell in 2001. And what is, is really sad and frustrating um, about this current moment is, is pulling the plug now means those investments are, are now, now in jeopardy. Well, that was really what I was going to ask. The blood and treasure that is often referred to. We lost 455 soldiers, of course, uh, £22.2 billion spent. If what you think is going to happen happens in the next few months or years, is that all just for nothing? It's um, it's it's not all for nothing because there's been you know there is a, a new generation of Afghans, um, young Afghans, um, an emergent kind of middle class whose expectations of the state, whose expectations about development, whose expectations about education have changed. Um, so there is that investment of, of, a, of a future generation, um, but um, the, what you know, the current constellation of factors with the danger now of, of political fragmentation. We have a major drought going on in the country, um, a, a likelihood that there's going to be major outmigration regionally um, and also internationally. All those things. Uh, you know, uh, suggest that uh, a lot of those investments are now being un, 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 are un, in danger of unravelling. What happens to women's rights in the country? Well, you know, there, there are different different analyses around this. Um, some people um, believe that the Taliban are not. I mean, it's, it's certainly true the Taliban are not the same Taliban as in, in two thousand and one. But there's also quite a lot of evidence from the field and from the rural areas that, that Taliban's views on you know, the kinds of governance and, and regulation they've imposed in the districts, they're not significantly different from what they were before. And certainly not the kind of structures that would not be tolerated in, in the cities. So there is um, a real kind of uh, clash here um, and... and, and uh, Certainly, um, there's a very new kind of a generation of, of, of women MPs and, and women activists who are speaking out very, very strongly now about the dangers of, uh, a, a, a Taliban takeover would present in terms of 
of, of women's rights and, and, and voice. Jonathan, is it possible to draw a kind of conclusion from this and say, what does it tell us about the cost and worth of trying to rebuild other countries? Well, I mean, it's at a very obvious point that the last 20 years have shown that the kind of militarised regime change and transformatory efforts at state building don't work. And we need to have uh, much more modest and much more grounded and domestically led processes of, of political change. Um, the Afghan experience, though, it, it wasn't kind of fated to fail from the beginning. You know, there, there have been strategic errors made throughout. Um, it could have worked in some respects. Um, the you know the distraction of the, of Iraq, the, the failure to negotiate with the Taliban in the early 2000s, the belief that the surge could work by kind of overriding forms of resistance rather than focusing on political negotiation. All these things mean that there could have been a different scenario. So I don't think it's a case that all forms of intervention are um, you know, yeah. kind of some kind of a mirage and doomed to fail. But yeah. I think domestic politics and, and supporting politics more than kind of militarized um, action um, is, a, is a way to go. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.